This is our land, not the government's land. That's the sentiment at the heart of the controversy over who should control the nation's open spaces. It's an emotional debate likely to keep heating up. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. If you live on the East Coast and you hear about people demanding the federal government turn over national parks to the states, you're probably a bit puzzled. And if you hear about people taking up arms to force that to occur, as happened last year at a wildlife refuge in eastern Oregon, you probably think they're nuts. But if you live west of the Rockies, you know this is an issue of some concern to many rational human beings on both sides of the aisle. The federal government owns about 28% of the land mass of the U.S. The vast majority of that is in the West. 28% of the land in Washington state is owned by the feds. In California, it's 46%. Oregon, 53%. Idaho and Alaska, more than 61%. And Utah takes the prize, with a staggering 63% of its land controlled by the federal government. The fight over public lands. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. America and the world are more divided than at any time in recent history. Red and blue, rich and poor, terrorist and peacemaker. For more than four decades, Lawrence Pintak reported from the world's fault lines for CBS News, Time, AP, and many others. From Armenia to Zimbabwe, the White House to the House of Saud, covering wars, coups, and the first suicide bombs. Pintak was also the founding dean of the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. Now he's taking an in-depth look at the issues that divide our world on American fault lines. Broadcasting from the Pacific Northwest, Pintac will bring a perspective that breaks through the New York-Washington news narrative and the fact-free zone of the alt-right media, seeking solutions, not shouting matches, and giving you a whole new take on the news. Watchmen are on post, and armed protesters have said they aren't leaving an unused building in a federal wildlife refuge in Oregon until they get what they want. Our purpose, as we have shown, is to restore and defend the Constitution. This land belongs to the U.S. government, but the anti-government group that has now occupied a building here for nearly three days says the federal government is unfairly taking that resource, that land, from the people. They're coming down into the states and taking over the land and the resources, putting the people into duress. That's from CNN. I'm originally from the East Coast. And so when Amon Bundy and his allies seized and occupied a wildlife refuge in eastern Oregon last year, I was as baffled as any of my compatriots. And when President Trump recently ordered a review of whether the federal government should continue to control national monuments under the so-called Antiquities Act, I was even more confused. After all, to paraphrase the president on another issue, who knew it was controversial to protect beautiful land formations like the Bears Ears Monument? In December of last year alone, the federal government asserted this power over 1.35 million acres of land in Utah known as Bears Ears. I've heard a lot about Bears Ears, and I hear it's beautiful. Over the profound objections 
of the citizens of Utah. The Antiquities Act does not give the federal government unlimited power to lock up millions of acres of land and water, and it's time we ended this abusive practice. I'll admit a bias. My default response is, somebody has to protect the nation's beauty. I could easily line up a few dozen experts who'll tell you why all that land belongs under the federal government's protection. But I've lived in a rural area of the Pacific Northwest long enough to know that the amber waves of grain, the Purple Mountain's majesty, and the fruited plain don't always live in perfect harmony. So this week I'm setting out to ask, What's wrong with federal sovereignty over the land? As I try to understand this issue, I thought it might be useful to start with some historical context. Char Miller is the W.M. Keck Professor of Environmental Analysis at Pomona College. But most importantly for our discussion, he's the author of Public Lands, Public Debates, A Century of Controversy. Uh, Dr. Miller, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. So our challenge here is to sum up 100 years of debate in about 10 minutes. Are you up for that? I am totally up for that. <laughs> so let's it's, pos- let's... it's possible to do. Okay, good. Um, let's start with the basics. What, when, when the federal government or whoever it was set out to create national parks, federal lands, what was the idea behind all this? The idea about the creation of what we now call the U.S. public lands, which includes national parks, forests, grasslands, refuges, and and sites like that, um, was framed in the middle part of the 19th century, 1860s, 1870s, is when the idea first caught hold. And the argument was that there were some lands that were really quite stunningly beautiful. Some lands had resources that we needed to conserve across time. Some places were invaluable and in protecting um, what we now think of as endangered species. They didn't quite have that language then, but that's what they were thinking. Um, But they had no political will behind these ideas. And frankly, the lands, although owned by the federal government, were being, I won't say looted, pillaged, and destroyed, but in some cases that was what was happening, whether it was in logging, mining, uh, cattle raising or whatever, these lands were getting pounded. So the ideas that began to emerge in the 1860s and 1870s um, caught hold with what we now call the conservation movement of the subsequent decades. And in the process, developed a political movement that argued that such conservation of resources, of landscapes, um, was essential for the preservation of the United States, that public lands not only were public in ownership, but public in consequence, that they mattered for the rest of us to visit, to think about, to enjoy, um, while also protecting mountainous watersheds, absolutely stunning vistas, and the like. So was, Was there any pushback? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the idea, as much as it caught hold with some people, um, also raised the hackles of others. So if you go into the early part of the 20th century, what we know today as the kind of sagebrush rebellion, the, the, the Malheur occupation, for example, most, current, most recently, 
Um, that has a 110-year-long history of some folks in the West saying, wait, 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 wait. We really like those lands that we had access to without anybody telling us what we could or could not do with them. Um, and even back in that day, they were arguing that the state should have ownership over these federal lands. The one catch for many of the states that, that was the that the states should have ownership. Should. So clear. But yes, they were okay. federal property and always have been. Um, and many of the state constitutions, such as Oregon's and Nevada's, um, indicate that when they came into the union, that those lands would remain federal and that's the way it would be. So part of this struggle that we're seeing currently really has this long legacy, which I'm absolutely fascinated by as an historian, to see these things continue to play out, to see the language and rhetoric essentially be the same, that controversy is controversy, whether it's 1906 or 2016. And I notice when you say that all this started in the mid-1800s, that was after the East Coast, of course, were all locked in. They had their yes. states. And so is that why we see all this red or whatever color it happens to be on a map, uh, all these federal lands dominating the West? Yeah, it is. Um, and, and in many ways, um, the other dynamic in this is not just that, you know, roughly 90 percent of the East is private property, but that's where the population was. At that time, mm -hmm. when Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, John Muir, and others were advocating for conservation, um, they were in places like New York City or San Francisco, which were, you know, pretty big cities. Uh, but most of the lands they're talking about are deep in the rural areas where there was not a large population. So it's partly that the resource was in one area and, and the demography was elsewhere, the bodies were elsewhere that enabled this process to unfold. But in 1911, the the Weeks Act was passed that allowed the federal government to start to buy from private landholders, willing private landholders, um, public lands or turn them into public lands. So the most recent example of that is the Katahdin Woods and, Nash and Waters National Monument in Maine, which was a gift from uh, a private landholder to the federal government. But even that became controversial. Hold that thought. We need to take a break. My guest sure. is Shar Miller, the author of Public Lands, Public Debates. We'll be back in a few minutes. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. We're talking about the debate over public lands with Shar Miller, a professor of environment at Pomona College and author of Public Lands, Public Debates. Dr. Miller, so was this imposed on the nation or was there grassroots support for this idea of turning over federal lands or, or turning over lands to the federal government? The argument today and back in the day by those who opposed the creation of national monuments and parks and forests was always that this was a federal overreach. Land grab is the language of the current Absolutely. world. Absolutely. I keep hearing uh, that over and over. All the time. Um, the, the irony is that if you go back into the histories of these landscapes, whether in Oregon, Washington, California, or even in the East Coast, there was tremendous popular support at the grassroots level for their creation. In fact, Pinchot and Roosevelt, Muir and others like them in the early 20th century could never have set aside these landscapes if there was not bottom-up pressure 
to create them. And so it depends on the forest, but you find this really fascinating um, energy emerging, which is, is as true again in the Angeles National Forest, which is right outside my window, um, as it is Lucky in any you. of the national... <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Or the, the, the National Forest in Oregon and Washington. One of the really key features was that the creation of these forests was actually about the protection of water resources, the watersheds themselves. And so people in Ashland, Oregon, for example, organized because they were so opposed to sheep and cattle raisers whose animals were befouling their water supply, the water supply of which came from the high country. Um, and so they actually went to Roosevelt and said, look, we really need this protection. And what was then called the Ashland Forest Reserve was created in direct consequence of their appeal. Um, so, 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 I mean, logically, one would think that that grassroots would have come from the east, people yes. wanting national parks, et cetera, yes. but with a not-in-my-backyard mentality. But you're yes. saying this came in the west. No, it came totally in the West. The same was true in Southern California, where no logging ever took place, but there was a lot of grazing. Um, and so downstream users, literally downstream of the L.A. River and the San Gabriel River, they were the ones who said to the federal government, even before the federal government had the legislative power to do anything. In the 1880s, they were arguing with their congressional delegation saying, we need federal protection here. It was fascinating. This all came out in a new book I've done called America's Great National Forests. And it looks at 30 of these forests and their experiences across the last 120 years. And I was staggered by the uniformity of the grassroots support of these initiatives. Very interesting. But when I look at a map, when I look at these figures of, you know, one state having 40% of its land yes. owned by the federal government, yes. another 60%, Utah, et cetera. Yes. I mean, yes. how, how are these numbers justified? It, it seems kind of staggering. It is staggering. And then you look at Nevada, which I think is close to 80%. Um, <laughs> but you have to break that down. Certainly in Nevada, it's a lot of the, of the Defense Department which owns that state. Um, partly if you look at where the lands are is also a signal for why the Roosevelt administration and subsequent administrations have done what they, they did, which is almost all of them are about high country watersheds, mountain ranges. Um, so there was always a negotiated process between what local economic interests felt they should have and what the federal government was able to say, you know what, that's not a bad, that's not a bad request. We'll peel that piece off, but we really need to keep this other one um, because in the end, conservation is actually not about special interests at this moment getting what it is that they really, really, really want to get. It's about thinking out across time a cross-generational reaction, which is, yeah, we get, we get that you want to graze here, but maybe your grandchildren will also, and so maybe we need to control our behavior a little bit. That's actually at the heart of much of uh, why these national forest parks and others were established. And so over this hundred years of debate, has, have the issues changed? They have a little. I mean, the rhetoric is actually almost essentially the same. You can tweak the words a little bit and it comes out the same thing. Um, but one of the problems for those who are arguing in opposition to federal lands, for example, is that the economies of their regions have fundamentally altered over the last 100 years. Back in the day, it was an extractive economy, whether it's livestock or mining, uh, uh, grazing, logging, you name it. Pull the stuff out and push it into the economy. Today, in Utah, Colorado, in the Intermountain West, as it is true in the Pacific Northwest, California, and elsewhere, recreation 
is the driving energy. Tourism is really at the heart of much of this economy. So, for example, Maine, which now has the Katahdin National For uh, National Monument, it generates five point six billion dollars a year on tourism alone. Wow. Numbers that are consistent in Utah and the Pacific Northwest. Well. If that's what's driving the economy, then the argument, which is, hey, look, this is federal overreach and we can't graze here, kind of smacks of an old claim based on an economy that doesn't exist anymore. And that's tough. I mean, I grant that. That's really difficult when the mills are gone and the logging communities are still there. What do you do? Well, the economy has shifted. And, and so some of this needs to, and uh, frankly, already has moved towards a tourist-supported economy. But one of the arguments I hear uh, uh, from those who oppose federal control is that even in recreational terms, some of these lands are off, off limits. In terms of like wild, wild lands, wilderness, do you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, again, that's a federal legislation enacted in 1964. Um, again, very grassroots oriented in its its development. As much as it was federal law, that doesn't happen unless there's a lot of support at the ground level. Um, and so, yes, there are always people who will argue against wilderness and its designations. But frankly, there is, relatively speaking, so little land that's set aside as wild relative to that which is still available. Um, and even even in the wild, you can ride a horse, you can go up into it and, and uh, play. Uh, it's not like you're set aside from it and that there is no access. Um, so I'm less convinced by that argument because of the, the very nature of those landscapes are wild, rugged, and quite isolated um, and have always been. So they're not quite as accessible. And frankly, they don't contain because of the way the designations have happened, they don't contain um, a lot of the natural resources that, that miners or loggers or others have would have loved to have gotten their hands on. These were pretty much lands that were not only remote, but had less value in terms of resources. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, thanks so much, Char Miller. To. Thank you so much. It was great being on. After the break, we'll be back with William Perry Pendley of the Mountain States Legal Foundation and Holly Fretwell of Montana State University. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. This is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak. In the first half of the show, we explored the historic roots of the debate over public lands. Now we'll hear from some people who have real concerns about federal control. With me are William Perry Pendley, president of the Mountain States Legal Foundation, and Holly Fretwell of Montana State University. She's the author of Who's Minding the Federal Estate? Perry, let me start with you. Since President Trump has made national monuments an issue, let's talk about those first. What are the concerns? Uh, President Trump has not made an issue of national monuments. President Clinton and President Obama made an issue of national monuments by designating vast national monuments, land lockups uh, throughout the West, uh, Utah in particular, and Obama did it in Maine. Uh, over the objections of local people and over the objections of the political leaders, and I think in violation of uh, federal law. Uh, these, uh, the Antiquities Act of 1906 was passed to protect 
American Indian artifacts in the American Southwest. Originally, Congress said, well, we're going to allow the president to set aside maybe 120, 240, 360 uh, acres of land to protect those artifacts. Uh, but then that uh, limitation was taken out. Over the decades, Congress uh, adopted various laws to protect federal lands. And then uh, uh, the Clinton administration dusted off that statute and said, well, we're going to set aside these lands and use a decree to do so because Utah objects to designating all of that land as a national uh, wilderness area, uh, which Congress only Congress can do. And so we're just going to uh, do it on our own. And that's what uh, Clinton did. And then that's what Obama did. And what President Trump has done, which George W. should have done, was say, wait a second, is that legal? Is that lawful? Is that in accordance with what the federal law provides? Holly, there are people who obviously say, well, the federal government has to protect these lands. What's your take? Well, the federal government owns over a quarter of the land throughout the United States and over 50 percent of the lands in the West. And if we look around at how these lands are being protected, we find that they're not doing a really good job, uh, particularly when we look at our forest service lands um, and our forest lands in general. Uh, but also when we look at our national park lands, we find that we have um, almost a $12 billion backlog on these national parks. That is, these are, these are areas that are not being cared for. We have uh, structures that are failing. We have uh, creeks that are um, being polluted. We have all sorts of problems that are taking place on these lands. So when we actually look at what's happening, then the federal government is not doing a very good job protecting these lands and, and also is not considering the local issues that uh, really should be playing a bigger role here. What kind of local issues? Well, when we're looking at our national monuments, uh, we find that the national monuments are being set aside to protect historic landmarks and as a result, um, and, and other structures. As a result of this, we see that they are oftentimes regulated and restricting access. So. If we look at what President Clinton did, setting aside the Grand Staircase Escalante back in 1996, 1 1.6 million acres of land set aside that no longer um, can we continue um, mining and, and looking for oil and gas on these lands. Some of these lands, part of this land that was within that was state trust lands that they've tried to uh, transfer out of now because those state trust lands are required to generate revenues. But because they were within this national monument, it made it much more difficult to actually get in there and generate those revenues for our public schools. So it really uh, limits what can be done on these lands and is restricting access uh, both for recreationists to get in there as well as for other types of uh, commodity production. But isn't the federal designation, isn't that protection part of the point in stopping mining or oil drilling, et cetera? I, I would say yes, it is. And that's one of the reasons that there's there's putting these things aside as national monuments, because it does, with an um, executive order, essentially, set these lands aside and restrict the, the use on them. Every national monument is slightly different, so it's not a one-size-fits-all on national monuments. There are some valid existing uses on some national monuments that are continued to be allowed, uh, but it just depends upon the national monument and how it's set aside um, and what the uh, regulations are, that, are, uh, that go, coincide with that particular national monument. Perry, well, go ahead. Uh, I, yeah, I, I would interject that you're kind of missing the point here. Uh, the point is uh, the Congress, under the Constitution, is given total, complete authority over the public lands, the federal lands. And it's Congress who's supposed to make the rules. Congress has made the rules on how these lands are to be managed. And these, these lands are protected in accordance with various policies like multiple use, like wilderness, like park, like 
national uh, wildlife reserves, uh, all according to different sets of laws and regulations. And when the president steps in and says, I'm going to ignore all that, I'm going to reach back to 1906 and take a statute that was intended for one thing, to designate this vast, essentially wilderness area where where uh, no uh, motorized vehicles may may go. And frankly, I disagree. I think no valid existing rights are protected. There's way if if there is a protection problem, and I disagree that there is. I think it's a prohibition issue. I think. Uh, the Greens want to stop everything on these lands. They want it all as a wilderness or all as a national park. If there is a problem like that, take it to Congress, ask Congress to pass a law, and get it done right. But uh, having an edict from the White House is not the way that this is to be done. So is this at heart a state's rights or individual rights or federal government issue? Well, it is at heart a rule of law issue and a constitutional issue. Under the Constitution, who has authority over federal lands? Answer, Congress. Uh, under the rule of law, you look at the various statutes that govern these lands, and uh, you, you look to see uh, what may the Secretary of the Interior do, what may the Secretary of Agriculture, who has jurisdiction over the Forest Service, do. And, and that's how you make a decision. You don't simply, because you have access to President Obama, go in and say, Mr. President, uh, we're frustrated. Congress won't pass a Wilderness Act to close five million acres of Utah. Please sign a piece of paper to, to make it all a wilderness for us and have the president do it. That's not uh, the way the Constitution provides and is contrary to the rule of law. Not about, it's, a, it's, a, it's not about states' rights. It's not about states' rights. Holly, let's go back to the issue of what the federal government's doing with these lands. I mean, you've written that the federal government isn't really minding the estate and that these things should be privatized. National parks, national monuments should be privatized. Is that right? Well, I don't think they're actually going to be privatized. I don't think that is politically feasible in our in our world today, but I do think... But you'd like to see that. Is that right? Um, I, I would question some of that. It depends upon what we want for these lands and, and what we expect to get out of these lands. I, I think they need to be more controlled more locally. I think we need more local stakeholders to have a say in what's happening on these lands. I think we'd see much better management of these lands if we had a more um, local aspect going with them. Uh, again, I, I just don't think it's politically feasible at this point uh, that we're going to privatize them or even that we're going to see a huge transfer over to the states, which has also been proposed. But I think what's really important for us to think about is what do we want from these lands and what sort of institutions can do a better job managing for um, what it is we're looking for. I think one of the big problems on our public lands right now is that we have these multiple use mandates on, on many of the lands. I think the national monuments are basically pulling that multiple use mandate off of it and regulating and restricting what's going on, exactly as Terry said. But we need to know what we want from these lands in order to be able to create better institutions and better management structures so that we can get that type of management on these landscapes. And Perry, do you think the states... Go ahead. Yeah, well, Lawrence, I'd like to jump in with Holly and I second her, uh, her emotion there on the federal lands management. We are right now uh, approaching summer, uh, although I'm under 20 inches of snow here in Evergreen, Colorado. Better but, you than me. Uh, we, will, we, will soon have, we will soon have the summer upon us and the fire season. And uh, the way the U.S. Forest Service uh, is managing that land is essentially their answer on the, on the pine beetle is to let the pine beetle kill the forest and then the pine beetle dies out because there's uh, no more forest to be had. 
and uh, we we have a vast moonscape across much of the West, just ready to burn with cata cataclysmic fires, the kind that we saw in 1910 in northwestern Montana up in Holly's neck of the woods. Uh, but you look at what, say, happened in Arizona when there were major fires in Arizona, and that fire ran up across National Forest grounds, stopped right at the boundary of the Indian Reservation simply because the American Indians uh, had ensured the proper harvesting of, of that forest. When you have that kind of management, uh, no wonder the West is frustrated uh, by what's going on and calling for a change and a, a more hands-on approach instead of sort of uh, back to nature's way and, and uh, let 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 uh, uh, whatever happens will happen. It's, it's ours to manage and we should manage it properly and wisely. Thanks so much. That's all the time we have. William Perry Pendley of the Mountain State Legal Foundation, Holly Fretwell of Montana State University, thanks for joining me. When we come back, Matt Keller of the Wilderness Society. I'm Lawrence Pintak and this is American Fault Lines. I'm Lawrence Pintak, and this is American Fault Lines. We're talking about control of national parks and national monuments. To wrap things up, I'm joined by Matt Keller, National Monuments Campaign Director at the Wilderness Society. Matt, we just heard from two proponents of returning federal lands to the states. What's wrong with that? Well, a lot of things are wrong with it, Lawrence. Um, at the heart of this issue is, you know, a an American resource and legacy of public lands. Uh, our public lands across the country in the West and the East um, are a resource that belong to all Americans. And this movement, um, really funded in a lot of ways by the oil and gas industry and, and politicians they give money to, is really just a veiled attempt to seize this resource uh, from the American people for, for private profit, with generally the net result being uh, an increase in no trespassing signs where Americans used to have access to to hike, to hunt, to fish, to camp, to, to do all the things that, that make our country great and the things that people like to do outside. Um, it's it's really a shame. I'm, I'm from the East Coast, and on the East Coast, you have very little in the way of federally controlled lands. I mean, isn't there some inherent unfairness that out here in the West, most or large swaths of land are controlled by somebody else? Um, you know, they're managed in trust for for all Americans by the federal government. People like to say that, you know, these lands are owned by the federal government. That's that's not really the case. They're owned by all Americans, and the federal government uh, has a trust responsibility to Americans to manage them in a way that benefits everyone. Um, you know, there are definitely public lands in the, in the East, certainly not as many, just given the way American history has unfolded and the way the West was settled. Um, but that's a resource that's out there for everyone to enjoy. And quite frankly, you know, they're managed for multiple things, not just recreation and access, uh, but there are tens of million acres tens of billions of acres across the West um, that are open, you know, not just for recreation, but for other forms of development that ultimately uh, benefit the American people, um, you know, by developing those public resources. There's one of the arguments from, from those who oppose this federal control is that some of the more recent things, the National Monuments, Bears Ears, one of the examples, were all done with 
executive orders from Obama sidestepping Congress. Uh, what do you say to that? Actually, it wasn't sidestepping Congress at all. Congress granted uh, the president the authority via the Antiquities Act to uh, to establish new national monuments. That's been a remarkably bipartisan tool with both Republicans and Democrats, uh, going all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt using that authority to protect special places on public lands that have you know a certain amount of, of value. Um, you know, to be held in perpetuity, um, you know, for the American people in their in their current state to be able to enjoy and to experience. So the whole notion of sidestepping Congress is a, is a total red herring. Again, Congress has given the presidency president the the authority to do this. Um, Congress has the ability to take that power away, but. Every time they have tried to do that over the years, it's, it's been blocked because it's largely unpopular. Um, if you look at studies from across the country, people like the notion of special places being protected by the Antiquities Act and other conservation designations on public lands. Um, so it's really not popular. It's, it's, uh, it's a total misnomer to say that they're sidestepping Congress. We have about a minute left. Does the president's order for a review of national monuments worry you? Oh, absolutely. It worries me, um, particularly given the way this president has signed executive orders that have been found to be illegal by the courts. I think they'll find uh, a similar situation here and that, you know, we've got a law, the Antiquities Act, that grants presidents the authority to establish national monuments. It does not give that authority, you know, purposely so, uh, for a president to revoke or diminish those monuments. Congress still has that authority and Congress has not chosen to do that. Um, I think it's unfortunate, particularly given the amount of public process uh, that went into national monuments uh, that President Obama established over the past several years, the amount of support from local governments, um, from local businesses, from stakeholders, from people on the ground that use these lands, to all of a sudden, just because the oil and gas industry doesn't like where this is going and what happened last time around that had control of the presidency, that we're just going to sort of turn all that on its head. Um, through the same type of executive order, um, quite frankly, that this administration criticized the last one for using. On that note, thanks so much, Matt Keller of the Wilderness Society. Appreciate you being with us. That wraps up this show. Thanks to my producer, Dave Bourne. Our theme music is by Dutch percussionist Ruben Van Rompuy. I'm Lawrence Pintak. Follow me on Twitter at L-P-I-N-T-A-K. Visit AmericanFaultLines.com and let us know what you think of the show. Download the podcast of this and previous shows on SoundCloud and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. That's it for this edition of American Fault Lines. (laughs) 